All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting for the first Sunday, uh, welcome to our church. Just want to welcome you, as like Spencer did before. We're glad you're with us. And uh, we uh, take time during each of our services to preach through a section of Scripture, and this is that time now. And we're in a series right now in the Gospel of John, approaching the end. We've been in it for quite a while now. It's a 21-chapter uh, book. And so we, uh, today we're in John 20, 1 to 10. If you want to turn on a Bible that you have or one of those pew Bibles in front of you or that sermon insert, feel free to do that. Uh, or on a phone app or whatever you have, uh, that, that'd be great, but I'll read this here uh, to start in just a second. Uh, today, though, is kind of the, the beginning of the end of the book. We are going to begin a, uh, you could call it, I guess, a, a mini-series of sorts on the resurrection. Uh, the rest of John has to do with the resurrection. Today's week one. Uh, and so really, uh, from some vantage point, whether it's like the explicit resurrection, the events of it, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, his interactions with people, uh, his commissioning, his sending out of the disciples, uh, and other things as well that happen, uh, it, it has, the rest of the book has something to do with the resurrection, whether it's, again, explicit or kind of more conversational. And so we'll um, really be spending the rest of our time then talking over uh, this, this very important matter. And it's, it's hard to overestimate how important the resurrection is. Uh, I think by way of introduction, um, I, I just want to say that the Bible itself goes so far as to say that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then Christianity in its entirety is a sham. It's a farce. This is the Bible's perspective. In other words, there's no such thing as a, a resurrectionless Christianity. Like we, like, we can't just take Jesus' moral teachings and say, well, if he didn't rise from the dead, we at least have his moral teachings, right? Isn't that still Christianity? The, we might say that, but, or people might say that, uh, but the Bible says that that, that is an, uh, an untenable position. Uh, Christianity is entirely about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is so much the nucleus that if you take it out, you have nothing left. It is so much the foundation that if you take it away, there's nothing it stands on. It completely comes uh, crashing down. Um, I think it was Fleming Rutledge who said something like, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, none of us would have ever heard about him. And I think that's really true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's just a guy, just a person. It, it's his, his message is basically inconsequential and meaningless, uh, and none of us would have ever heard about him because, you know, millions of people have been martyred or killed for some kind of cause or, uh, you know, crucified or have gone through some kind of a capital punishment uh, throughout history. Jesus just would have been one of the masses. Uh, but in fact, he did ride. This is why we know about him. It, it, it's it's the, uh, the smoke that tells us uh, that, that the, the existence of the church is the smoke that tells us that there's a fire of the resurrection that actually occurred. And so um, these next several weeks, then, we're going to be talking about this, uh, this idea. And um, today I want to call this sermon Life at the Face of an Empty Tomb, because with the first 10 verses, that's kind of what we have. It's, it's the first, again, not the whole story today. We'll um, spend a few weeks on this, but this, basically what we have is this story of the, the Mary Magdalene and Peter and John staring into the empty tomb, and I think in a lot of ways, um, Christianity, this is what Christianity is, and this is what, we've all, what we all do, whether we believe or not. Uh, this is what we do. There's no body. Jesus isn't there, and, we, and the gears start to spin, maybe. Uh, some of, most of you are Christians. Some of you might not be yet. Um, but the gears might start to spin, and we start to think, what does this mean for, for my life uh, and for reality itself and for the sake of my hope as uh, someone who is destined to die, uh, like uh, every single person who, who is, who's ever lived? All right, so let's just read, uh, to start here from John 20, 1 to 10. Read the whole passage to start, and I'll, I'll summarize some things. So, 
Um, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which is John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. All right, so just to summarize kind of uh, what we just read here, uh, the first day of the week is Sunday. It's very early in the morning, still dark. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb to bring spices, uh, probably other. So if you aren't aware of this, there's four gospel accounts in the New Testament. John is one of the four. And so piecing together what we know from other ones as well, uh, Mary is um, bringing spices uh, to the tomb. But the stone had been removed from the entrance, and there's no body. So uh, the way John records it is she's jumping to the conclusion that uh, grave robbers, this is the they, and, and, and they have taken him away. She jumps to the conclusion that grave robbers had taken Jesus' body. And so she runs and tells Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples. They also run to the tomb. Uh, John takes time to mention that he was a little bit faster than Peter. And after they both arrive and look in, um, in they had this moment of dismay uh, that basically thinking it's true, she's right. The, the, the body isn't here. Um, but as they catch their breath and maybe the sun starts to rise and kind of picture uh, the sun coming up and, and starting to send some rays into the tomb itself, they can see a little, little bit better. They don't have their iPhones to shine a light in, in, into the tomb. And so the, as that starts to happen, at least as they start to think over what this crime scene is really, look as they think it, uh, is really starting to look like, something surprising stands out, and that is the grave clothes are still there. And the burial spices uh, as well, both of which were quite expensive. So what kind of grave robber leaves behind the grave clothes but takes the body? That's the, this is like part of the gear starting to spin here. It'd be like if you owned a jewelry shop and your, friend's, your friend calls you up and says, you've been robbed and you run down and all the jewelry is still there but, but the carpet's been ripped up or something. Uh, this nasty carpet and, and hauled out. You'd be like, well, what kind of thief does that or something like that? Or, so it's kind of like that moment where they're realizing the thing that a grave robber would do in this moment hasn't been done. Uh, and so, so what kind of grave robber would just take a body away and, and not the thing they could sell for, for profit? More than that, the, the head cloth uh, was set over to the side away from the rest. Some translations say folded up kind of neatly and put over to the side. So again, what, what grave robber would take time to neatly place some of the clothes to the side? It's sort of like a hotel room where part of it's kind of neat, neat, neatified. It's not a word. Made neat. Uh, and other parts of it are just a little bit messy. Um, I mean, it's, it, it looks like Jesus just woke up and cleaned his room a bit and walked out. But that can't be true, can it? Uh, and so the gears start to spin, though, and then it says, John starts to believe. John starts to believe. Um, and so what I want to do this morning is kind of walk us through a couple things that John uh, takes time to note here. Um, and uh, I was telling Spencer and Peter this morning, we have several weeks on the resurrection, so I've been kind of making a short list of things. Um, 
because it's the, the temptation to say everything about the resurrection, and there's so much to say, we can do that anyway, but, uh, but we'll kind of pace ourselves a little bit and just preach the, te- just preach the passage. So in, in these 10 verses, where's the theology here? Not just the history, but what is God saying to us? Like, like where's the theology of the gospel uh, as it comes forth here from the resurrection? We'll do some other things too, apologetically, and, and uh, take some fun little journeys here, but... Um, but that's kind of the big question is what is this actually, how is God speaking to us here through this passage? So the first thing I want to talk about is Peter and John's uh, Easter morning fun run, basically. And this is how I picture it uh, happening. But uh, so how do we make sense of this, I think is the question. Um, this foot race to the tomb. John, uh, as you might expect, uh, maybe you don't know, but John is the only one of the four that write this down because uh, he won, I guess, or who knows. Um, but... So why is this included? Is, is it simply from John's perspective, part of the first-hand account of what happened? And I think it's at least that, yes, but it also seems incredibly out of place, doesn't it? It's almost like John stopped writing scripture and just inserted a humorous way to jab at his friend. That, that's what it sounds like. Uh, but with God's word, there's no such thing as out of place. When it comes to God's word, it's a lot of times it's the things that feel like uh, they're um, out of place or just blips on the radar or inconsequential or just weird, that that's where we really see theology, um, and that's where Jesus kind of pops or his gospel or the principle of grace kind of pops. Um, and so when I read this, I, I see John writing with a bent towards the competitive. Uh, the, the, the statement, John got there first, in one sense, can't be read any other way. It's straight-up comparison language, straight up, right? Now, now, in terms of motive, John actually has a precedent. So John wrote five books of the New Testament. Uh, John has a precedent in other New Testament books that he wrote of using self-deprecating commentary. Uh, uh, the best place to see this is in Revelation 22, 8 to 9, where this is actually the last chapter of the whole Bible. It's like almost over. It's a couple of verses after this. Uh, it's, it's in, in, in Revelation, John is getting a revelation, from an, hence the name of the book, from an angel about things past, present, and future, things that pertain to Jesus and the gospel and the church and what's still to come. So some of it's still yet to come. Uh, but John, it says here at the end, I, John, fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing these things to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll, worship God. And so uh, it's, just, it's just like um, humorous almost, but kind of light, light-hearted thing. It's sober because John's sinning. He's, he's, he, uh, he chooses to write down that he's uh, worshiping like not God, right? Worshiping an angel, which is sin. He's doing something very wrong. At, le- at the very least, it's this huge faux pas. It's this huge moment of I screwed up. Uh, at worst, it's sin. I think it's both. Um, but if, if you've ever, like, if you ever start to believe that the point of the Bible is to magnify the human spirit or to, uh, to lift us up and, and sort of empower as, as though the Bible's about us, uh, I would encourage you to read how the Bible begins and ends. The Bible begins and ends with humans sinning. Genesis 3, sin. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, Someone's screwing up. I mean, this is like in context with Jesus' announcement, I'm coming back soon, and John is still sinning. You know, it's, it's just like the Bible's not about you and, and our perfect exponential growth curve upward. That's not the story. 
uh, we, we sin, we screw up, we don't, we can never become what we think we should. Uh, and yet Jesus is still there making promises to us. And it's not contingent. Jesus' return here to earth, his future impending return, it's not contingent on John not worshiping angels, apparently, and, and, and us not being perfect. Isn't that amazing news? His, 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 his impending return is not based on you keeping his commandments perfectly, uh, his laws. Uh, his promises are promises. They're actually loving promises. They're not, I will love you if you do this. It's just, I love you. And so that's, that's, this is a bit of a, a digression, but this is like an example of John in how he thinks of himself and how he writes himself into the story. It's, it's a wonderful thing, actually. Now, going back to John 20, I think John 20, sort of similar, similarly here, is not John bragging, but John bemoaning his former competitiveness, bemoaning his immaturity, or maybe like in a self-deprecating way, laughing at himself, you know, as though that this is how I used to, th- like I had, I had a way of thinking about myself and about the faith and about my relationship with my friends that, you know, was a little bit immature. Uh, but this whole thing ends up serving as a wonderful juxtaposition to the resurrection itself and what Jesus is doing in spite of John's uh, immaturity in this moment. I would say it this way. It's John's way of saying that even at the pinnacle of history, at the threshold of the empty tomb, at the dawn of the new creation, here I am still trying to win. And I did win, but where did it get me? Jesus wasn't in there waiting to reward me. I didn't get a first place medal. What I would come to understand soon was that Peter who lost and I who won were equally saved by Jesus. My view of grace was infantile, but later I would start to see clearly. In the wake of the resurrection, all spiritual foot races are rendered void and inconsequential. All that matters is that Jesus is alive and saving us by grace, not our spiritual or moralistic speed. So what this is, is a word for people who like to compare themselves to others. This is a word for people who have an infantile, unbiblical view of grace, who are growing in their understanding of how one way, not two way, one way salvation is. I mean, think of like this from Peter's perspective too, the guy who lost. If any of you ever, as Christians or not, but uh, for Christians especially, if you feel slow, if you feel passed up by other believers, if you feel different, if you feel like you have questions or doubts, if you feel like uh, other Christians understand things quicker than you do, uh, or like you can't shake this one sin um, and can't find the victory you thought you would have, if you feel like you're spiraling, all that matters, the, the word here is all that matters is that Jesus is alive, loving you, and saving you by grace, not your spiritual or moralistic speed. That's the gospel in John 20. That's the gospel in the Easter morning fun run. That's the gospel in John's like little aside here on, on how he won when he shouldn't have been thinking. In the face of the gospel, we don't think about winning anymore. It's over because we're not climbing a ladder. We're receiving God coming down the ladder. As John says in John chapter 1, uh, later in that chapter. Okay, so with that said, I'm going to come back to some of that, but I want to uh, digress a little bit here and talk about this parenthetical in verse 9. 
um, which is, remember it said that John is starting to believe, but it says that it must have not been full belief yet because it says um, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had had to, had to rise from the dead. And so that means when he says Scripture, that means Old Testament Scripture. They didn't understand that the Old Testament was about the resurrection. They were coming to terms with it. They would later understand this. And it would shape all early Christian preaching, actually all Christian preaching, good preaching for all of history, but the early Christian preaching. The big question then, of course, that flows from that is, well, how does it do that? Like if someone asked you that, how would you answer? Like if someone asked you, well, where, where does the Old Testament talk about the resurrection? How is it predicted? How is it forecasted? How is it typified? How is it yearned for? Um, I think that Christians should have a vested interest in knowing the answer to that question. Because if we don't, well, what is the Old Testament about then? Is it about you? Is it about some, some other kind of just principle uh, for how you live your life? See, the advantage to understanding this is because it shows us the resurrection was God's plan A. Not plan B or C. Not like an outer ring idea. But the cross and the resurrection is, like I said before, is Christianity. It's not the starting blocks, it's the essence. Uh, it's the sun of the solar system. Uh, and the more we see how, how much of the Bible is about these things, the more we believe it, and the less we put ourselves on center stage. That's one of the, actually, not the only advantage, uh, there are many, but that's one of the, one of the big advantages to, to seeing this. All right, so I want to walk through five things pretty quickly. All these things, to be clear, could be elaborated on. Uh, but at five angles here and answer this question, how does the Old Testament predict and foresee the resurrection? Um, the first is uh, looking at how the first Christians saw it from the vantage point of uh, the book of Acts. Peter in Acts 2, the first Christian sermon ever, he quotes from Psalm 16.10, a psalm of David, written a thousand years before he lived, and quoted in verse 10 where it says, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, uh, kind of a prayer or song to God. God, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And if you keep reading Acts 2, like Peter's reasoning is David can't be talking about himself as David's body did see decay. He's still dead. Uh, and so he's decayed. There's just bones left or dust at that point. And so he must have been talking about someone else, one of his descendants, namely Jesus, whose body did not see decay as Jesus was only dead for three days. And there are many other things like this that we could look at, but this gives you an idea of how the early Christians, the apostles, reasoned through and interpreted the Old Testament, principally through the lens of Christ or the gospel, not making the Psalms about us and how we should pray and, 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 and our story primarily, but seeing them as actually Jesus' song and Jesus' story, and actually seeing the resurrection in these kind of like things we might not be inclined to see ourselves uh, if we don't have the help of, uh, of other scripture doing it for us. The second layer would be the forever promises of God. So uh, places like in 2 Samuel 7 where God covenants with David, promises to him about something he's going to do in the future that's big and beautiful and cosmic and eternal and salvific, and he's going to somehow bring a king through his line and, and his kingship then essentially would be forever. But in, as you read the story, uh, and he says this repeatedly, uh, but as you read the story, the death of kings in David's line is a threat to this promise. 
But the idea is one will come in David's line who will reign forever because, because, precisely because he will live forever. So the forever here is not about perpetuity with his genealogical line. The forever has to do with resurrection. The foreverness would not be possible without eternal life and without a bodily resurrection. Another uh, figure kind of on this topic is the figure of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, a very mysterious uh, enigmatic figure in the early parts of the Bible who was a priest king who did not have a genealogy, which uh, if you read the book of Hebrews uh, and they comment on this, uh, it makes it sound like he lived forever. That's how they interpret it, or he interprets it. So to which the New Testament apostles said, uh, the author of Hebrews again in particular, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is to say Jesus is a priest on the basis of the resurrection. He is a priest, in other words, he brings us to God on the basis of an indestructible life, not on the basis of the law. That's the distinction. The Old Testament priests got their job by the law, uh, and they were priests on the basis of God's law, but Jesus is different. He is a priest on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of the resurrection, on the basis, like, kind of like Melchizedek, on the basis of an indestructible, uh, imperishable resurrected life. And so they go on to, to make a big therefore from that, saying, therefore, Christian, you are not saved by keeping God's law, nor do you stay saved by it. You are saved by the resurrection. You're saved by Jesus, a different kind of priest who operated on a different basis, not like the old lawful priests did, but on the basis of an indestructible life. That's how he gets to grace law stuff uh, in, in Hebrews 7 and around in context there as well. All right, then you have third day references. So in Luke 24, Jesus says, this is what is written, that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead specifically on the third day. And so when you read the Bible, the Old Testament, you see that significant things happened in the Old Testament on the third day. Isaac's figuratively raised from the dead. Esther successfully advocates for her people before the king on the third day. Israel is given victory over Gibeah in the book of Judges on the third day. The whale spits out Jonah on the third day and many other things. Uh, there are also more explicit prophecies like Hosea 6.2 that says, on the third day I will raise you up. On the third day I will raise you up. And, and even have things like on the third day of creation in Genesis 1, plants sprouted forth from the earth, which is remarkably similar to how Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, uh, sprouted forth from the earth on, on the third day, uh, and many other things like that. That's just a sampling. So this idea of like significant things happening on the third day, this is how the resurrection was predicted. Uh, and this is what Jesus is pointing to in Luke 24. On that, that's actually on Easter morning. He's doing this with some disciples. Point of these things saying, look, this is where I was hinted at and forecasted and, and, and prophesied. The fourth uh, layer is a typolo typological uh, or think foreshadowing kind of, uh, but typological patterns of burial and resurrection. Uh, th this just means there's a pattern in the Old Testament of prophets and savior figures who figuratively experienced death and resurrection in the stories that Jesus would later come to fulfill. So here's just a few samples. Uh, Joseph in the well, David in the cave, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah in the belly of the fish. Um, Jonah's actually one of the more explicit ones because Jesus likens himself to Jonah directly in Matthew 12, 
um, calling his death and resurrection the sign of Jonah. Uh, he says, like uh, Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man, or the Messiah, or speaking of himself, so will he spend three days and nights in the heart of the earth. So this a very direct thing uh, there. But all these stories here, whether Joseph, David, um, if you're ever a VeggieTales person, Rack, Shack, and Benny, remember that? Uh, that's the, the other thing there. And then Daniel, um, it, it's you know, very common to read those stories as though they're about you, and they're not. Uh, they're about Jesus. They're, they're about his death and burial and his resurrection. These are, these are savior figures. I mean, all, think of all these stories. After these things happen, and these prophet figures came up out of their uh, effective uh, tombs, uh, significant, like, saving things, good things happened. I think of Joseph's story and how he saved an entire region from a famine through his figurative death uh, and resurrection up out of that well. Um, And I could talk all day about this, but it just gives you an idea of how these stories, they're they're about Christ, and not specifically Jesus the man, but specifically his death, burial, and resurrection. The whole Testament and all these stories uh, are, are about this. Then fifth and final uh, would be this thing I'm going to call faith as a type of resurrection hope uh, from Hebrews 11. Faith as a type of resurrection hope. This will, start us get, this will start to get us back to John 20 as well. But what I mean by this is um, faith is, uh, definitionally speaking biblically, faith is not just belief in God. Faith is a particular belief in the God of the Bible who is able to single-handedly raise the dead back to life. That's what faith is, biblically speaking. Faith is not uh, just belief in the unseen. It's not just belief in this kind of nameless God. It's a belief in the God of the Bible who is able to single-handedly raise the dead. This is how Hebrews 11 in the New Testament talks about faith. And so just, just to summarize uh, the kind of the high points of this, look at Hebrews 11 says. By faith... Enoch did not experience death. By faith, Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was able to bear children. And so from Abraham, who was as good as dead, came descendants. By faith, Abraham figuratively received Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Joseph gave instructions concerning his bones because he knew God was going to put his body back together someday. By faith, Elisha gave women back their dead. By faith, prophets refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Uh, and by faith, the people who were suffering, being persecuted, longed for a better country, uh, a heavenly one, knowing they were going to be raised uh, into, into new life someday. So this is not the whole chapter, as most of you know, but this shows you how the faith is not a generic faith. The faith believed God could raise the dead. That's what faith is. Do we believe God can raise the dead or not? And they, don't know, they didn't know the name Jesus of Nazareth yet uh, like we do. We look back, but they're looking ahead. They're, they're, they're trusting that this isn't the end. And they believe that God actually had the power to do this and that he was going to. And that faith was a trusting in Jesus kind of faith without that word uh, name put to it yet. But it, it, was, it was enough. It was satisfactory. It was sufficient. God, God counted that as faith, as they looked ahead to the fulfillment of all of God's promises, which was his son coming to the world to be the true resurrected one. So kind of moving from that then, in one sense, that is kind of me with my teacher hat on for a second, because 
in, in, in one sense, that's just something that you need to know. Like, if you're a Christian, we, again, we have a vested interest in answering this question. Is there one lone, random prophecy about the resurrection floating somewhere in Isaiah? Or is the whole thing about, the, the, the whole testament about this? Like, your answers, those two, thing, those two responses are very different. Very different. And it will greatly affect how you read the stories in the future. Are they about you or about Jesus? Like, primarily. Are they about him or are they about us? Is it about the gospel or a principle for living? Like, primarily, what's it, what's it mainly doing? How's the Bible position these things? Um, but also to know that it's God's plan A. Again, Christianity is essentially about the cross and resurrection, uh, not about a way of living. That's really huge to see. Now, with that said, um, what is li- my third section here today is, um, what does life look like, then, at the face of an empty tomb? As we kind of synthesize all of this. Um, and again, we'll talk more about this in future weeks too, but just to start to answer this today, like what does life look like at the face of, of the empty tomb? Um, now, if you, if you go back and look at Hebrews 11, just to start to answer this, um, if you go back and look at Hebrews 11 and read that, I summarized it, uh, and, and you, you ask the question, who are these people? Uh, these people who are recognized for their faith, uh, who are they? What, what, besides faith, what do they have in common? Like, they're pretty much the, the worst kinds of people, morally speaking, you could ever think about. Um, if you're keeping score, they are prostitutes, uh, husbands who pimped out their wives. They are people who loved power and drooled over it. Uh, they're murderers, fornicators, habitual liars, the faithless, the proud, the list goes on. This is like, this is the people in Hebrews 11 that had faith and who are credited and recognize for their faith, even while up to their eyeballs, in sin. Uh, this is one of, by the way, this is one of the um, reasons why we should all read the Old Testament to see this. Like, who are the kinds of people that God are loving and saving? Like, we have to have an answer to that question as well. Like, if we don't know these stories, we're going to be inclined to say, well, they're pretty good people. But they aren't. They're terrible people. Terrible. And like us. Uh, but that, that's the whole point. And so when, when come to understand that, not only does it shape your idea of grace and, and what's expected of us, which is nothing. Grace expects nothing of you, nothing of us, except to believe and, and receive the grace that's offered, that, that's offered freely. And so when we come to understand this, not only are we understanding the story on its terms, not our terms, but its terms, but we come to see, like, what does it really mean to be Christian? And what does it really mean to, be, to have life and to be a believer and to be in covenant with our creator again? And these are like the questions of life, right? And so these people in Hebrews 11, they had sin, big sin like us, and yet they had faith. And, and I would say, I would put, uh, use this phrase, they trusted in something outside of themselves. That's what they did. They trusted in something outside of themselves. They didn't trust in themselves to stop sinning. That's impossible. They trusted in something outside of themselves to save them in spite of their sin and their improficiency, their faithlessness. Um, Even as they mourned their sin and grieved it heavily, they trusted in something outside of them. And that's been the story of Christianity ever since. Like, that's the train. Hop on, hop off, whatever you want, but that's the train. That's what life is like at the face of the empty tomb. 
I like R.S. Thomas's uh, poem here. This is just an excerpt from his poem, The Answer. Uh, he says, There have been times when after long on my knees in a cold chancel, a stone has rolled from my mind, and I have looked in and seen the old questions lie folded and in a place by themselves like the piled grave clothes of love's risen body. And I like this because it shows how our questions this is, again, this is for believers and non-believers, Christians, non-Christians here. Like, um, it shows how our questions remain, how our problems remain, our sin in a lot of ways remains, but the empty tomb starts to become the answer regardless. Uh, to look into Jesus' tomb and see there's no body is to have the answer to all of our questions and problems. Uh, not that they all go away, but it's the answer regardless. Amidst the pain, amidst the waiting, amidst the coldness and the inability to be the kind of person we think we should be, and amidst the imminency of death, we look in and we consider what we're seeing, and the gears start to spin and we start to believe. Love's body isn't there. And when we ponder this, when we live our life squarely in the limelight of that freeing idea, our questions start to get, kind of go back to the poem, the question, our questions start to get kind of folded up with the grave clothes uh, and, and shelved, especially the questions of meaning and eternal life and how we as sinners and sentenced to death ones can be reconciled with a holy God. And so to circle back uh, to how I started uh, and <clears throat> to go back to John and Peter, John and Peter are a picture of you and a picture of me. After the foot race, uh, and they get there and they look in, they, they see uh, something like this. Um, the fact that Jesus isn't there is extremely important. Uh, Jesus is risen, but he's also not waiting for us. Please hear that. The Bible never says God is waiting for you. The Bible never says God is waiting for you to get there and to run and to sprint and to win and to find him. The Bible never says that. Did you know that? Never says that God's, God's waiting for humanity, waiting for you, waiting for his people. It constantly says, though, that we are to wait for him. Remember that, how, how much that's plastered over the Psalms of the Old Testament and elsewhere, that, that we wait for you, God, we wait for him to work on his power, by his desire, by his grace, to come to us on his time, on his uh, by, his, by his will, and on his watch. You know, here when they look into the empty tomb, in other words, Jesus isn't sitting there with a stopwatch, or, nor is he on a judgment seat, nor does Jesus offer any kind of reward or punishment to Peter and John. This is not a puzzle or a game he's waiting for us to solve. He just isn't there at all because salvation is completely apart from anything you ever do. Even our sprint towards the empty tomb, even our consideration of these things, our full understanding, is not, it's even apart from that. It's by grace we're saved, not by works, lest none should boast. And if Jesus was in the tomb waiting for John and Peter to be right there, if they found him, it would send all the wrong messages about the gospel. 
He's not waiting for you to get your stuff together. Please don't plaster that false view of Christianity uh, across. This, the, the invitation here is don't think that way. There's a better way of thinking as a Christian, or if you're not a Christian yet. Don't have that false view of Christianity. Don't, don't not come to the faith because you have that view. Uh, come for better reasons. Come for true reasons. That God is to be waited on by us. He's good. He is loving. And he's just about to appear to Mary here. Next week we'll look at that. So when we say he's not waiting for us, he still wants to come to us. But he always comes to people himself. It's his, his, no one ever finds Jesus after his resurrection. He, he's always the one that appears to people, even at times through locked doors and walls, miraculously passing through. No one ever finds him. You've never found him. Don't think you're an exception to that. Like, your story as a Christian is not you finding Jesus. You're, you're not different than Mary or Peter and John or all the disciples or the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Uh, I have better news for you. God has found you in your sin and in your distress, even when you weren't looking for him, Romans, Romans 10 says. We weren't even looking, and yet God chose to reveal himself. People weren't even looking for him yet. Do, do you see how, like, powerfully one way the gospel is and, and the good news is that's relentlessly true every day that's not a conversion idea and oh the rules are changed now that i'm a christian now it is about me trying to find god now it is about me keeping the faith by being a good person and showing my worth that, that's that not only dangerous it's theology from the pit of hell it's nowhere in the bible it, it, it paints god in the wrong light god is always this way we just sang that song, he never changes. Never changes. Jesus never changes. We change. We, the world moves like mad. We change all the time. Jesus never, this characteristic of Jesus, how he always finds us in despair. He always moves towards us and loves us in spite of ourselves. And how we never find him. And how he's not waiting for us. That characteristic never changes. But, you know, we, we live as though it does, though, so often. I do. It's a, it's a default wiring of the human heart to, to default back to this, uh, that, that unbiblical way of living and thinking. Um, the tomb's still empty. So, so, so this question, right, is at the end of the day, um, is this true? Is this the Jesus that we know and love? Is this the Jesus that we're coming to terms with? Is this the Christianity of the Bible or just our brain? Our brains are almost always wrong. Like John, all we need to do is believe. Like, that's what it says. Like John, all we need to do is believe and believe that we are the ones Jesus loved. When John says that I am the disciple Jesus loved, I think he's probably writing that into the story because he needs to remember that. This is the same guy in 1 John 4 that wrote, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Same guy. That's what love is. Love is defined from God to us, not us to God. Uh, and so we, all we have to do um, is believe, come to terms with this reality and believe that the gospel is given to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a gift. He died for our sins and rose to defeat death for us. We need to believe that and believe that we are the ones that Jesus loved. When you do that, you're a Christian. That's what Christians think. True Christians think that. 
And so if that's what you think, you are saved. If you don't yet but want to, if you, when you believe that, that's, what conver- that's, what, that's conversion. That's what we call Christians, we call conversion. We convert from not thinking that to thinking that way. Even though our belief might not be totally polished, no one's, no one's is. We have that mustard seed of faith, and we, we look into the tomb, and we believe that love's body's not there. Uh, it means he rose for us. And we stare into a battlefield, not a school, uh, but, but a, a battlefield where he went to work for us. And, and we believe um, that he did as such and that uh, the battle's won. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this passage. We are just barely cracking into this uh, beautiful story in your gospel in John about the resurrection. I pray you just bless our journey through it these next few weeks together through Easter. Um, help us, God, to learn and to hear your voice call out to us, to wait for you. Um, in, in one sense, all of history, humanity has been waiting for God to move because we are powerless to turn your head. We are powerless to earn favor with you. We are powerless to take one single moralistic step towards you whatsoever. Uh, We are waiting for you to take that step towards us and waiting for you to save and waiting for you to look upon us with mercy and favor. And the good news of the Bible is you constantly are that way throughout the story. And the ultimate way you did it is through your son, Jesus. Uh, When you came at the fullness of time, Galatians 4 says, born of woman, born under the law, to save those who are oppressed under the law, the unkeepable law, uh, and yet to liberate us and to make us sons and daughters by your blood, adopted into your family based on love, not based on any kind of moral accolade, but just love. And so uh, we praise you for that. Thank you that the tomb is still empty. Help us to live as though that's the case this week, uh, to love freely, uh, to live freely, uh, and, and to have happiness, even amidst the, the despair of life and the sadness. Um, this is true. And uh, one day all sad stories will become untrue uh, because of this one event. Everything really will be okay. Christians, can, we can actually say that because of this. Everything really will be okay in the end because the tomb is still empty. In Christ we pray. Amen.